0: You're listening to the Touch'em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC Vegas 84, Ankalayev versus Walker 2, taking place live from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. The first UFC event of 2024 kicks off with a rematch from UFC 294 in the light heavyweight division, between Magomed Ankalaev and Johnny Walker. Then, in the co-main event of the evening, you have another rematch, this time at 125 pounds in the UFC flyweight division between the number 5-ranked Mateus Nikolaou and the number 6-ranked Manel Kopp. So, without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, everybody. All right, all right, all right. We're back with UFC Fight Night Predictions, UFC Predictions, and I'm excited, man. It's been about four weeks since the last card, UFC 296, and I'm excited to get this going, get this started again. We have this card, and then next weekend, we have UFC 297 with the UFC middleweight title bout between Drikus DuPlessis and the champion in Sean Strickland. Um, This is a pretty decent card. I mean, when you look at it from top to bottom, there's not a lot of fights on here that have a ton of cans or, like, have fights that, you know, people may not know of. I mean, there's a couple that I don't think people are going to care too much about. I mean, if I had to pick, I would say the uh, Gene Silva and Weston Wilson fight. And then second to that might be Preston or Farid Basharat. Versus Taylor Lapalus. But Lapalus and Basharat is going to be a phenomenal fight. Uh, Weston Wilson and Gene Silva. We'll get to that one when when we get to that bout. Um, Joshua Van filling in to take on Felipe Bunes. Who I believe Bunes or Bunes was also on the contender series. And he was supposed to have another bout with somebody on this card. And then the card got shifted around a little bit. But yeah, I mean you got a lot of good fights on this card. You have contender series fighters like Tom Nolan taking on Nicholas Mota. Uh, Marcus McGee versus Gaston Bolaños, that's going to be a really good fight. Preston Parsons and Matthew Semi, the Gemini Semelsberger. Phil Hawes and Bruno Ferreira is going to be a banger to open up the main card. Uh, Mario Batista and Ricky Simone is another phenomenal fight. And then the main and the co-main event. So there's a lot of good fights to look forward to. I feel like there's a lot of betting opportunities when looking at certain fights on the card. Um, But we'll obviously get to that after we break down the fights. But... We're gonna kick it off with the first fight of the night between Joshua van Fearless, Joshua van taking on Felipe Buñes. You have Joshua van coming in nine and one as a pro mixed martial artist. Felipe Buñes on the other side, I believe, is eighteen and six as a professional MMA fighter. I'm gonna check this out for you right now, just to make sure. Um, I should have had sure dog pulled up, but again. It's been a minute since we've broken down these fights, so I'm gonna be a little rusty, but I'm ready to get this going. Uh, get this going again. So yeah, Felipe Filipino uh, Bunez, 13 and 6 as a pro fighter. He has 10 finishes out of 13 wins. Out of his six losses, he's never been knocked out. He's been submitted twice and lost four decisions. The last loss in his pro MMA career came February of 2022 to a former UFC fighter. But this was over in LFA in Jucié Formiga where he got submitted with a rear naked choke in the second round. Before that he lost the decision back in March of 2020 to Imran Bukayev or Buku- Bukuev. Iman or, Oh my god, I'm saying it wrong. Imran Bukuev at ACA 105. Uh but Joshua Van and Felipe Bunes, I actually think this fight is going to be very very solid because in the areas where I think Bunez is going to have a serious advantage uh, or in the areas where Felipe Buness excels. I think that's where Joshua Van can have some issues. Um, he doesn't really have too many issues working his way back up to the feet. If he does get taken down, he shoots takedowns as well. He can even shoot takedowns to close out rounds and make sure that he's going to win that round. But the one thing I like about Joshua Van, it actually reminds me of one of my favorite fighters in the UFC in Peter Yan. And it's the fact that he starts off slow and he's a builder. He builds and builds and builds and builds. Now with building up your output, building up your striking combinations, building up your ability to flow inside of that octagon, usually the biggest thing to offset that flow is a big power shot or a level change counteractive takedown. I do think that Buneis has the opportunity to get Joshua Van out of his flow state by shooting takedowns as Van moves forward. But it would more have to be counter to counter active takedowns than actually pursuing the takedowns himself. Because if he's walking forward and shooting takedowns, yes, it's going to put Van on the defensive, but it's going to allow him to develop counter strikes, develop, you know, finding out your range, finding out, do you lower your level before you shoot your takedown? Do you shoot takedowns from the body lock? Um, can you jump for submissions on the feet? If you're... Counteractive off of the shots that van throws or off of the forward pressure of van it's going to be harder for him to be able to defend it but if you're coming forward and shooting those takedowns and being in his face and pushing him back yes the pressure is going to get to him eventually but it's going to allow van more times to develop his counters develop his touch touch rip with shots to the body come back up top with uppercuts but big head kicks I think that this is a fight where Bunez is dangerous, but if he's going to win this fight, it's probably going to be him catching Van on the feet with a big shot like we've seen him get caught with before. He doesn't have the best defense, but he's good at catching and countering. He's a very good catch and counter. He likes to to catch the shots and then come back with a touch, touch, rip, rip to the body, touch, touch, rip, rip to the body. Then he'll use those body shots to get you to drop your hands and he'll come back up top. Jab, left hook, right hand, switch stance, left head kick. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom, boom. And then he'll build as the fight goes. I do think that a wrestling style and a grappling heavy style of Bunez is going to give Van some trouble in the early goings. But I really like this Joshua Van kid. I, I really do. Um, looking at the height, it's only a one-inch height advantage for Bunez. Uh It doesn't have his reach on here because this is obviously going to be his UFC debut. But, you know, with Van coming in against Zolgasu Magulof and, you know, defeating him in that spot... And then coming in in his last fight and going to war with Kevin Borjas, who was another fighter on the Contender Series, but being able to survive getting knocked down, coming back, landing big combinations, getting on the forward foot, finding the counters, slipping, countering, parrying, and coming back with counters, ripping the body shots. He's very, very solid. He's a very, He has a very high fight IQ. Does Joshua Van? And I think that's going to be the biggest difference here. I think Van is more technical. I think Joshua Van finds opportunities to set up his shots better. And with a fighter who builds up as the fights go on, that's a good thing in terms of UFC level competition because I think Bouness is going to be a fighter who, if he can't get those takedowns early, if he can't control those positions on the ground, you can get a takedown and then Van can shrimp his hips out use the underhook and the overhook, stand back up, turn back to the center and get away. He can get a takedown and then he'll use the butterfly guard to, you know, extend, push out, use the overhook, stand up on the overhook side, turn to the underhook side, return with the underhook side and get back up. Van is a guy who's not going to really submit to those positions, but in also getting back up to your feet, you might give up your back, which can be a sticky situation against a grappler, the level of Bunes, where out of his 13 victories, the most amount of wins come by way of submission. So I think van is also live to get a sub in this fight because with a fighter hunting heavy for takedowns, grappling, looking for submissions, I do think van might have the opportunity to break Booness, have him shoot a sloppy takedown later on in the fight and then eventually lock up that guillotine or take his back and lock up a rear naked choke. So I could see like a late round two, round three submission for Joshua van who does have submission wins in his career. Um and I think for Bouness, Bouness has been submitted in some of his losses. He's never been knocked out. Um, I think if anybody can knock him out, it would be a volume striker with the technical prowess and the power of a Joshua Van. Um, but I really like Joshua Van here. I think he should be a much bigger favorite. But I think with respect on the side of Bouness in terms of the, the the betting market, it is a good opportunity to jump on fearless Joshua Van. So I'm going to take Joshua Van to get this done. I'm going to go with a second round submission, actually a late second round submission um, based on the fact that Buñes has never been knocked out. Like I said, I think van with the forward pressure, with the technical boxing ability, the ability to touch, touch and rip to the body. And, you know, just the technicality overall and the ability to stay calm in the firefight and use his fight IQ. I think he might be able to wear him out with body shots, drop him, cause Buñes to shoot a bad takedown and then give up his neck for a potential submission. So, I'm going to take Joshua Van second round submission. Um I think Van on the money line is a great parlay piece and yeah, I I love Joshua Van in this spot. So, Joshua Van late second round guillotine choke submission. All right, moving on. Nicholas Mota taking on Tom Nolan. Oh, listen, man, I was big on Trey Ogden over Nicholas Mota in their last in his last outing. Because I knew that if he needed to, he could use his grappling. I knew that he was the more technical striker. He had the better footwork. He used his jab a lot better. And I mean, he picked apart Nicholas Mota for the entire fight. The fact that that fight wasn't an arm triangle choke submission for Trey Ogden or wasn't a clear 30-26 decision for Trey Ogden, um, I mean, it robbed me because I had Trey Ogden on the money line at like plus 115. Nicholas Mota is powerful. He has a big left hook. We've seen him knock out guys like Cameron Van Camp. He, he closes the distance, kind of a bob and weave style, but he doesn't really use his kicks. He doesn't like to wrestle. He's mainly a one-dimensional fighter. And going up against the fighter in Tom Nolan, I think being that one-dimensional style of fighter is going to be a recipe for disaster against the Contender Series alumni here. Tom Nolan is not really going to look to use his wrestling. He's not going to look to grapple. He's going to want to keep it on the feet which is going to give Mota more time to find his openings, more time to land his shots and potential opportunities for him to catch uh, Tom Nolan with a big left hook. But we've seen Mota get knocked out. We've seen him get taken down and out wrestled. And we've seen him kind of get picked apart until he finds a way to land that big left hook, to land that big slip counter, slip and roll counter. And I don't think those counters are really going to be here against a fighter in Tom Nolan who. Although he only is coming off a win on the contender series, and you do have to take that into consideration. I don't think Nicholas Mota is that good. I really don't. I think that Tom Nolan is going to be able to use his range, be able to use his distance. Um, He's going to be coming out in that southpaw position. So that outside foot is going to be there. He's going to be blasting that left inside kick, blasting the left kick to the body. I would say more to not attack the inside kicks because you don't want Mota to brace and then counter with a big left hook. But I think with the reach, the range, uh 6.3 compared to 5'9, 73 inch reach to 70.5 inch reach for Nicholas Mota. So a two and a half inch reach advantage. Or uh yeah, two and a half inch reach advantage for Tom Nolan. I think Nolan's gonna find the opportunity to land that straight left hand. He's going to be looking for the jab. He's going to be landing those front kicks up the middle. He's going to attack that inside kick, and he's going to be able to outbox and just keep Nicholas Mota at distance until he runs into a big straight left hand or a big overhand left as he rushes in and gets countered and knocked out. I think Tom Nolan is going to put a stamp on his UFC debut and knock Nicholas Mota out cold. Now Mota's always going to be live for a knockout. He's always going to be live to land a big left hook, to land a big right hand, to get on the inside. But that's the problem with a fighter in Tom Nolan. Tom Nolan is going to be using that lateral movement. He's going to be looking for that outside foot positioning with the lead foot to line up that power backhand, to line up that power back kick, to line up those front kicks to the body, to attack the inside kick come back with the check hook, come back with a left kick to the body. He's going to be using that footwork and movement, which is something that Nicholas Mota doesn't really have. Mota is kind of a forward pressure, all gas, no brakes. He doesn't really cut his opponents off. He doesn't really look to, to trap his opponents in any way. He just kind of looks to rush forward. Land big counters. It is dangerous. There's always an opportunity that Nolan gets countered, but I think the the distance management, the control, the overall higher level of weapons on the feet is going to make Nicholas Mota's best chance to win his best chance to get finished as well. So I like Tom Nolan here. I think Nolan's going to land a big counter straight left as Mota tries to class the uh, close the distance and crash the pocket, and I think we're going to get a first round knockout here for Tom Nolan. Uh, I think he is around the favorite price tag, like a minus 300. I think he's a decent parlay piece. But um, if I had to pick between him and Joshua Van, I would say Van would probably be the better parlay piece between the first two fights that we've broken down. Um, I would look for Nolan in round one, round two, Nolan inside the distance, or Nolan by knockout in round one. I think those are probably your best options, but I do think he finds the chin of Nicholas Mota, who's had his chin cracked multiple times before, and uh, lands that big straight left on his chin and knocks him out. So give me Tom Nolan, first round knockout over Nicholas Mota. Up next, we move to a fight in the featherweight division between Weston Wilson taking on Gene Silva. I'm going to keep this short and sweet. Gene Silva's around uh 8 to 1 favorite, 9 to 1, minus 800, minus 900. Weston Wilson, you know, coming out of Wonder Boys gym, very light on the feet, very in and out heavy style of movement. Um, He does have grappling in his back pocket. He likes to grapple. He likes to go for submissions. I think this is a fight I would stay away from in terms of the betting market. Like If I was going to throw something on it, I feel like I would probably put a little bit of money on Weston Wilson by submission or Wilson inside the distance, just because I feel like the only upside in this fight is to bet the underdog. But I don't really see Wilson getting the job done here. I think Gene Silva is going to walk forward. He's going to crash the pocket. He's going to be looking to push Weston Wilson back, get him to panic shoot, get him to panic wrestle, control the distance, get him to do something he doesn't want to do. And then he's going to land his big straight punches, the hooks, um, the knees to the body, the kicks. And if it does go to the ground, even though I would say Weston Wilson is the, the higher level grappler, I still think Gene Silva has the ability to hang with Weston Wilson. And if he hurts him on the feet, I think there is a potential that he could lock up a submission and even submit a guy in Weston Wilson who's known for his grappling and submission game. Um, I like Gene Silva here, but I do not like betting this in any regard. Um, I would say if I was going to bet it, I would probably take under one and a half rounds because I think this fight ends early and I think it's Gene Silva either knocking out Weston Wilson or hurting him bad with a big shot on the feet and potentially locking up a sub. Um, Like I said, there is value on the underdog, but it's not enough value for me to tell you to go play Weston Wilson. So I like Gene Silva. I just think he's more dangerous. He's more technical. He's much better on the feet and he's competent enough on the ground to where I don't think he's going to get caught in any submissions. So I'll take Gene Silva, uh, first round knockout or TKO. I think he crashes that distance, gets him up against the cage, unloads a big combination and puts him down. I think a sneaky play would be Silva by submission because even though Weston Wilson is the heavy submission guy, I could see him panic wrestling, getting caught with a big shot and trying to shoot and then getting his neck caught in a guillotine or giving up his back and getting caught in a rear naked choke. So sneaky play would be Gene Silva by sub, uh, round one, round two. But I'm going to go with Gene Silva, round one, knockout. Uh, I think he just closes the distance, puts him up against the cage, lands his big left hand, right hand, starts to put the combinations together and gets him out of there. So Gene Silva, round one, knockout. All right. Next up, we have a very interesting fight in the 135-pound division between one half of the Basharat brothers, in Fareed Basharat taking on Taylor Lapalus. Now, Taylor Lapalus was a guy who was in the UFC for a while, left the UFC, had some good success, and then came back with a victory via decision over Colin, or, uh, Kalen or Calen or Kalen Lochran, I, I might be saying his name wrong. Um, that was a fight where I backed Loughran, but I didn't break the fight down. I didn't really do any analysis. I just thought Lochran uh, was going to be able to win. But after seeing the fight, man, Taylor Lapalus is very, very solid. The only thing is that he has issues with the grappling. He has issues getting taken down, issues getting, you know, put on his back. But the one thing I will say is that he's not easy to take down. And even if he does get taken down, he's very, very well-versed at getting back up to the feet. Um, using the underhook, using the double-side uh, double side wrist control to control the wrist to avoid the opponent locking up their hands and working his way back to the feet. But he can get taken down and controlled on the floor. And against a guy in Fareed Bashrat, that's not something you want to have in your pocket of potential vulnerabilities. Um, on the feet, I think this fight is very competitive. Like, if it's a complete striking match, I would probably favor Lapalus. I think that he controls the range very well. He finds the the opportunity to land that straight left hand. He has a very good jab that he kind of just flicks out there. He kind of has like a flick jab where he'll just pop it, and he's just pop, 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 pop. He can double it, triple it up, and he uses his jab to control the reach and control the range, and then he'll find the opportunity to land that backhand. He's a very cerebral striker, kind of a point fighter style. Um, I think that that game plan against a guy in Boshrat, if Boshrat isn't able to get those takedowns, and control Lapalus on the floor. I think Lapalus is 100% live here to make it close enough to where he might be able to steal a decision or win the fight down the stretch and win the last uh, the last two rounds, maybe losing the first round. Um, I just think that it, eventually the takedowns are going to be there for Fareed Basharat. I think he's going to be able to close that distance. He's going to be able to get those takedowns in. I do think he's live to get a submission, against Lapolis, but at the same time, I think Lapoulos probably can survive um, any potential submission attempts, and I don't think he gets knocked out. I think if there's a knockout in this fight, it would probably come from the side of Taylor Lapoulos, man. After what I saw in his last fight against Colin Lockrin, who was mainly just looking to use that grappling once he knew that he was going to get outstruck on the feet, um, I do think Basharat is a much higher level grappler. He's much better in the positions on the floor, much better at controlling from the top, and hunting for submissions than a guy like Lockrin, but I think that the grappling is the biggest difference here, and that if that's able to be exploited on the side of Lapoulos and employed on the side of Basharat, then I think he wins this fight pretty dominantly, but I don't think he finds a finish. My official prediction is going to be Farid Basharat by decision, but I would be remiss to say that I don't think a bet on Taylor Lapoulos is is a bad bet. Like minus 230, I think is a little bit too high on the side of Farid because I do think the range, the distance control, the takedown defense, the ability to land counters, the usage of the jab, I think that's all going to be there for Lapolis. And I think he can make this very competitive if the takedowns aren't there or if he's able to work his way back up to the feet once he gets taken down. But I think the biggest way that this fight probably goes is con- a competitive first round, but eventually take down top control, uh you know, controlling from side control, controlling from the mount, hunting for submissions, but not getting them landing good ground and pound, and eventually just winning on the judges scorecards. So I'm going to take Farid Basharat via 29-28 uh, split decision. I think it's going to be a split. I think split decision is probably a good way to bet it. If Farid wins, it's more than likely by sub. Um, I could see Lapalus winning via decision. It might be a best bet to do fight goes to split decision because I do think Lapalus is, like I said, competent enough on the feet, has good control of the range, uses his jab very well, and then follows up with that power backhand if he's on the correct angle. And he has good enough footwork, I think, to avoid some of the takedown attempts and potentially work his way back up to the feet if he does get taken down. But the pick is going to be Farid Basharat by 29-28 split decision. Um, But a sprinkle on Lapalus by decision or Lapalus by KO, I don't think is a bad move at all. All right, up next in the Bantamweight division, we got a uh, banger, honestly, a really, really solid fight between a fighter coming out of the MMA lab in Marcus McGee taking on Gaston, the dream killer, Bolaños. Uh, I believe Bolaños trains over at AKA. I I might be wrong, but you can correct me if I am. This is going to be a very interesting fight. And I think the biggest thing that people are saying is that Marcus McGee is going to employ his wrestling, use his takedowns, top control, look to lock up the rear naked choke, look to get the back, put in the body triangle, lay a ground and pound, and look to set up a submission against the fighter whose biggest hole in his game comes on the mat. And I definitely think that if Marcus McGee wants to win this fight quick and easy, that's probably the best way to approach it. Push him back, get him against the cage, get a takedown, control from the top, land ground and pound, look for an arm triangle, look for a rear naked choke when he gives up his back. I mean, that that is going to be the path of least resistance for Marcus McGee, but I think Bolaños is working tirelessly on defending takedowns, working tirelessly on getting back up to his feet working tirelessly at getting off the cage, probably a lot of cage wrestling um, and keeping it at the kicking range inside the boxing range where he wants to keep it. Marcus McGee is a very, very solid striker. He's got a very good straight shot right down the middle. He uses his jab. He uses a lot of footwork. Uh, There's actually a lot of similarities between McGee and Bolaños when it comes to the striking. I just think that Bolaños is more well-rounded and he's a little bit cleaner than Marcus McGee on the feet. If this fight, isn't showcasing any grappling, then I would say Bolaños probably wins it. I think that plus 225 is a little bit ridiculous when Bolaños is going to be the more technical striker. He's going to be the more efficient striker. He's going to have the better footwork. And, you know, I understand why he's such a heavy underdog because of the grappling, because of the wrestling, because of the top control, and because of the power that Marcus McGee showcases. But at the same time, I don't know, man. This, this fight's kind of a coin flip to me. I feel like this fight should be maybe minus 150, Marcus McGee, minus 160. When you're getting to minus 300, minus 350, you're giving McGee a little bit too much respect, and you're disrespecting Bolaños a little bit too heavy for my liking. I think Marcus McGee, like I said, if he really wants to win this fight and make it look easy, it's getting those takedowns, pushing Bolaños up against the cage, you know, shucking him forward, breaking down his base, putting in your your body triangle, landing ground and pound, getting him to give up his neck and look for a submission. But if you don't think that Bolaños has been fighting off the rear naked choke, having guys on his back, cage wrestling for the most of the camp, working his way back up to his feet, then you're a little bit crazy. And honestly, in his UFC debut, what I saw in his fight against Aaron Phillips, which yes, I believe Marcus McGee is a much better fighter than Aaron Phillips. So you do have to take that into consideration as well. But what I saw is that even when he got taken down, even when he got put in bad positions, even when he got put in a body triangle, he stayed calm, fought off the choke, and eventually worked his way back up to the feet. And then the minute he got back up to the feet, he was coming forward, landing combinations, switch kicks to the body, constantly changing stances between orthodox and southpaw to you know square up the hips of the opponent, to leave him open for a big power shot down the middle. And Marcus McGee does that same thing, fights out of southpaw, but switches between southpaw and orthodox uses a lot of lateral movement, uses a lot of in and out movement, but I think the kicks are going to be the biggest difference on the feet in terms of the striking. Um, I think the body kicks, the leg kicks, I think we're going to see a lot of calf kicks from Bolaños, but he's going to set him up with a lot of switch step feints, a lot of switch 45 switch back to the original stance to square up the hips, a lot of footwork battles in this fight. And I think that's where Bolaños is going to have the biggest advantages in the footwork, in the ability to set up shots and walk McGee into certain shots. Um, seven and three for Bolaños, eight and one for Marcus McGee. I'm not saying that McGee can't make this look easy, but I think if I was going to be making a pick here, I feel like Bolaños might be the better overall pick. Um, in terms of betting, it's, it's all Bolaños or McGee by submission. I mean, then that's kind of how I see it in terms of betting it. Um, it would be Bolaños money line or Marcus McGee by submission, but When I look at the fight overall, I do think Marcus McGee can get the takedowns. I do think he can control Bolaños from the top position, but I think I have to side with Bolaños here. I'm going to go with the big underdog at plus 225. It might be different now, but I think Bolaños is a lot better than people are giving him credit for. I think he's tirelessly been working on his takedown defense, his get up game, his cage wrestling. And I think he can outpoint Marcus McGee on the feet. And I even think he can land a big shot on a counter and potentially drop Marcus McGee and get him out of there. You know, not saying we've seen McGee get finished, you know, not in the UFC, but just in his MMA career overall. But I think McGee can get caught, you know, being a little overconfident against a, a fighter who has the striking level of Bolaños with hundreds and hundreds of kickboxing fights. so And some experience in MMA, spinning elbow knockouts, et cetera. I would say probably don't look for a lot of spinning techniques in this fight because McGee is more than likely going to follow it and try to take your back, just like Alexa Grasso, Valentina Shevchenko. Just like we saw in the fight with Aaron Phillips and Bolaños, I think he's going to look to follow that spin and take his back, get the takedown, put in the the hooks, and go from there. But honestly, man, I think I'm going to side with Bolaños. I just see a little bit more of an upside on the side of Gaston Bolaños because I think he knows what to expect from McGee. And I think that he can hang with McGee on the feet if it does become a full striking match and he's going to be able to land the cleaner, more effective strikes over 15 minutes, potentially even knocking out Marcus McGee because of his technical prowess and his power when he puts his combinations together. So I'm going to take Gaston, the dream killer, Bolaños, via decision in this fight. Um, I could also see a KO. Um, If McGee wins, like I said, it's more than likely going to be a submission. But give me the dream killer. Give me Gaston, the dream killer, Bolaños, to win this fight via 29-28 unanimous decision. Up next, we've got a battle in the welterweight division between Matthew Semi, the Gemini Semelsberger, taking on Pressure Preston Parsons, or Preston Pressure Parsons. 11-6 on the side of Matthew Semelsberger, 10-4 on the side of the underdog Preston. pressure or Preston pressure Parsons. I'm going to be honest. I know what people are going to be thinking. Preston Parsons has been knocked out before. Matthew Semmelsberger has a phenomenal right hand. But the thing is with semi, that's kind of all he's got. And it wins in fights because of how fast, how clean, how efficient it is and how he can win, win rounds that he's clearly losing just by landing that big power right hand. But eventually, that one singular weapon gets found out, and you get beat by a more well-rounded fighter. And that's what I see here in the plus 110 underdog in uh, Preston Parsons. I can't talk. That's what I see in Parsons, man. Parsons has a win over Roman DeLidze. Um, Let me just double-check that, but I'm pretty sure Preston Parsons had beat Roman DeLidze by decision. Let's see. Uh, Maybe I'm... Okay, never mind. I thought somebody said that he had a victory over Roman DeLidze, but it does not look like I'm correct there. So maybe I'm wrong. He has a unanimous decision win over Evan Elder. uh, Lost a split decision to Trevin Giles. I bet Giles in that fight. I just watched it last night. I think Giles... Did do enough to win that fight? He got knocked out in the first round by Daniel Rodriguez. Um, I could have sworn somebody said he had a win over Roman DeLidze. so I must be crazy because it's not here. He got knocked out by Mike Perry uh, early on in his UFC or uh, MMA career in the first round. Uh, he's got a lot of wins by submission, armbar, armbar. He actually has a uh, armbar submission win over Ignacio Bajamondes. So I think that is something you guys should look out for, who is a very solid technical striker, light on the feet, in and out movement. Um, That's probably his best win would be that submission over uh, Ignacio Bajamondes, along with the decision win over Evan Elder. But uh, 10-4 is a pro MMA fighter, nine wins by submission, no knockouts, two KO losses, one submission loss, one decision. Um, If this fight ends with Parsons losing, it's because he got knocked out in the first round by the right hand of matthew Semmelsberger. i mean that's what Semmelsberger does he walks forward he uses his jab finds the opening boom right hand he's going to be at a grappling disadvantage he's going to be at a submission disadvantage we've seen that this guy has really not a good ground game it's improved he, he's improved his get up game he's improved his cage wrestling but against a fighter who's going to be looking for the grappling and wrestling who's going to be looking for the takedowns i think the pressure of Preston Parsons, as long as he avoids that big right hand, which is the million dollar question, he can win this fight. He can get a submission. He can get a ground and pound TKO. Um, he can just outgrind Matthew Semmelsberger. The fighter who's going to be pushing the pace, Preston Parsons. The fighter who's going to have more output, Preston Parsons. The fighter with the better wrestlings and takedowns and submissions, Preston Parsons. Um, the fighter with the bigger power, Matthew Semmelsberger. And power is always the great equalizer. But if Semelsberger can't find the pathway for that big right hand, he's going to get taken down, he's going to get pressured, and he's going to get put on his back and potentially submitted. Um, I think Preston Parsons wins this fight. I'm not supremely confident in it because of the power that Matthew Semmelsberger has in that right hand, and based on the fact that we've seen Preston Parsons get knocked out before, but he's got decent boxing, he puts his combinations together, he walks forward, he can take big power shots and come back. I think the upside is all on the side of Preston Parsons because you know that if Semmelsberger can't land that big right hand, he's not going to win the fight. So I like Preston Parsons here. I think Preston Parsons wins via, um, I'll go a late submission, probably a round three uh, rear naked choke, round three arm bar. He could get a submission early too if Semmelsberger tries to scramble too much and leaves his arm out there. But I'll go with a third round submission for Preston Parsons, but I think Parsons is the better fighter. He has more weapons. He, he's more technical overall. Um, better grappling, better jujitsu, better threatening submissions on the ground, better on the ground if he does take down Semmelsberger. And he doesn't have to worry about really a wrestling threat from semi. He just has to worry about the big power in the right hand. So I don't think Matthew Semmelsberger finds the right hand. If he does, it's probably in round one. So I would say uh, Matthew Semmelsberger, round one knockout, or Preston Parsons, the round two, round three submission. Or Preston Parsons in round two, round three would probably be your best bet. But I like Parsons here. I like Preston Parsons as the underdog. Um, I think he's got a lot of upside in this fight. And he's the overall better fighter. He has so many more weapons than Semelsberger. It's not even funny. And I like going with the fighter that has more tools in his back pocket most of the time. So give me Preston pressure Parsons to defeat Matthew Semi the Gemini Semmelsberger, via a round three armbar submission. Or a rear naked choke. I think he gets a round three sub. Could be early as well or it could go to decision. But I like Preston Parsons here uh, to defeat Matthew Semmelsberger. Alright, now we get to the last fight on the prelims in the heavyweight division between Andre the Pitbull Arlovsky taking on Waldo Cortez Acosta. Salsa boy. Salsa boy versus the Pitbull. Listen, man. Uh, this is going to be a Waldo Cortez Acosta pick all day. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I don't think Andre Arlovsky is going to outpoint Cortez Acosta over 15 minutes. I think Andre Orlovsky should not be fighting anymore. He's 34 wins, 22 losses, two no contests. A lot of his recent losses come by knockout, come by submission, come by being finished. And I think Cortez Acosta has that power, that one hitter, quitter knockout ability where he's probably going to catch Andre Arlovsky in the first round and put him down. I mean, I could see Andre Arlovsky winning, but if he wins, it's going to be by outpointing Acosta, avoiding the power, and winning a decision. And I don't think Arlovsky is going to last 15 minutes against a fighter with the power and technical striking ability of Cortez Acosta. So, I mean, Cortez Acosta is minus 500. I think it makes sense in this in this position. I think if you're playing Andre Arlovsky at this point, You only play Arlovsky by decision, but in my opinion, you're kind of burning your money. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. Uh, So I like Cortez Acosta. I think he's going to be the more powerful fighter. He's the younger fighter. He has less miles on his body. He's faster, cleaner, more powerful. I mean, I think every upside on this fight, aside from point fighting, comes from Waldo Cortez Acosta. So I'm going to take Waldo Cortez Acosta round one knockout. I think he's just going to walk down. Andre Olovsky find the openings, land a big power shot on the feet, um, put his hands together in beautiful boxing combinations and eventually just crack Arlovsky on the chin with a chin that's been cracked multiple times before. So I like Waldo Cortez Acosta here, first round knockout. And I mean, there's not really much else to say in terms of breaking this fight down. All right. Up next, we move to the first fight on the main card and a very, very interesting matchup in the middleweight division between Phil Hawes taking on Bruno Ferreira. Ferreira's coming off that loss via first round knockout to uh, Ruzi Boev. I forgot his first name, but uh, lost to Ruzi Boev in that fight. Um, I picked Ferreira in his fight against Ruzi Boev. He got knocked out in the first round, got the kick caught, got punched, hit his head off the mat on the way down and got knocked out. Um, I picked against Bruno Ferreira with Gregory Rodriguez. He did get clipped. He did get hurt at a certain point but then he was able to find that big power straight left hand on the chin and flatline Gregory Rodriguez. I mean flatline, like no moving around, like just dead on arrival. One shot, just boom, right down the middle and knocked out. I think a lot of people are going to go into that fight against Ruzi Boev and think, okay, well, Ferreira can be knocked out, and so he's probably going to lose to the better overall fighter in Phil Hawes. Um, Phil Hawes is the better fighter, 100%. He's more technical, he's more crisp, he's faster, he has better footwork, better movement. The one thing is, though, he has a really, really suspect chin. And the minute you crack that chin, he can't come back from it. I mean, that's really how I see this fight playing out, man. Like, there's fights he should have won easy that he just got caught on the chin and knocked out. Got knocked out by Ikram Alaskarov. Got knocked out on the Contender Series with a brutal head kick from Julian Marquez got knocked out by Roman DeLidze. That's when Roman DeLidze really arrived on the scene in the UFC. This guy gets knocked out in like all of his losses, and he's going up against a fighter in Ferreira who has one-hitter-quitter knockout power, who has big power on the feet, who uses a lot of shoulder rolls, head movements, etc., and has the ability to crash the pocket with devastating power. If you're giving me a fighter with devastating power Against a fighter who, yes, is more technical, who, yes, is more well-rounded, who, yes, has better footwork, who, yes, can put his combinations together better, but has a suspect chin like Phil Hawes, you're making me think that this is a Ferreira spot all day. Now, you could go and say the same thing about Ferreira and say that Ferreira has a suspect chin. He got knocked out in the first round by Ruzy Boev. I think that was more just based off the fact we didn't know too much about Ruzy Boev at that point. And more based off the fact that when he got his kick caught and got punched, the impact of his head hitting off the mat after that punch really aided in the knockout more than the actual punch that Ruzy Boev landed. And I think that's something that people have to think about when breaking this fight down. But I think Ferreira is more dangerous. I think the finishing upside is all on Ferreira. I could see Phil Hawes winning the fight based on outpointing him, picking him apart, landing the faster, slicker combinations. You know, just putting combinations on his chin and eventually knocking him out. Yes, 100%. He could use his wrestling. He could take down Ferreira. He is the overall better fighter. But sometimes you don't got to be the better fighter. You just got to find your way to win. And that's what I think Ferreira is going to do here. I think he's going to walk forward, close the distance. They're going to get into an exchange. Ferreira is going to land a big right hook or big straight left hand right down the middle. And it's going to hurt Phil Haas. wobble him. He's going to land one or two more shots and he's going to knock. Phil Hawes out cold. So I like Bruno Ferreira here. He's not like my most confident pick, but I am confident enough to say that if I was putting money on this fight, I would put money on Ferreira, either on the money line or Ferreira by knockout uh, in round one or round two. So I like Bruno Ferreira. I think he just finds the chin of Phil Hawes that gets found a lot and he doesn't have a good chin. And against a power striker like Ferreira, I, I gotta go with him. So give me Bruno Ferreira to win this fight by first round knockout against Phil Hawes up next we've got a fight in the Bantamweight division between Ricky Simone taking on Mario Bautista Simone comes in with a record of 20 victories four defeats on the side of Mario Bautista 12 victories and two losses Um, I like this fight I really like this fight. I think that this fight is very tricky in terms of a betting perspective. I think this fight is very even on paper. Um, The fighter who's fought the better competition is Ricky Simone. The fighter who has bigger wins is Ricky Simone. The fighter with the bigger power on the feet is Ricky Simone. But I think Mario Batista is a little bit more technical than... Ricky Simone. I think that he sets up his shots a little bit better on the feet. He switches stances between orthodox and southpaw. He can throw out feeler shots to kind of set up his striking. Um he reminds me a little bit of Jack Shore, but I think he has a little bit more to offer in terms of his overall MMA game. I picked Simone to beat Jack Shore. I picked him to win by decision, I think. I might have picked submission, but I think I picked decision. Um and that was a fight where he was heavily, you know, undervalued and heavily underappreciated. I picked Ricky Simone to get knocked out by Song Yadong, and I think in this fight, this is a fight I probably wouldn't bet on, but if anybody was going to get my money, I I think it would be Batista as the underdog, but breaking down the fight overall, I think the better wrestler is Ricky Simone, I think the better jujitsu artist, the better grappler overall is Mario Batista, I think the fighter with the bigger power is Ricky Simone. But I think the fighter who mixes up his strikes better, who's more technical, who's more crisp, who sets things up better, is Mario Bautista. It's really going to be, is the power and grinding pressure of Ricky Simone going to be too much for Mario Bautista? If you look at Damon Blackshear, Blackshear came into the fight against Bautista on short notice. He was hanging with him on the feet. He got some takedowns, um, lost later on in the fight, got taken down, got out positioned, you know, was getting hit with some big shots later on in the fight. But I think Batista can hang with Simone on the mat and in the wrestling department a lot more than people are giving him credit for. I don't think Ricky Simone's just gonna walk forward and bash a guy like Bautista. I don't think he's gonna walk through a fighter like Mario Bautista. Bautista has submissions off of his back. He threatens with armbars, he threatens with guillotines threatens with rear naked chokes, he can use sweeps off of his back, he can go for setting things up, he's the more active fighter off of his back if he gets put there, and based on the fact that uh, Ricky Simone is going to be that heavy forward pressure, big boxing combinations trying to hurt Bautista, then shoot in and get the takedown, and ground and pound submit him from the top, I think that he's going to get into those scrambles with Bautista, and I think Bautista would be better I think he's more well-versed in surviving jiu-jitsu scrambles against Simone than Simone is in surviving scrambles and submission attempts and submission battles than Bautista, and I think Bautista sets up his strikes a little bit better. He's more well-rounded. He puts things in front of his power shots a little bit more than Simone does. Um, Simone has big, big power in his boxing. He mixes up head and body very well, but he is a little bit stiff for my liking, and uh, he is a little bit rigid. At this point in his career and i think the more overall well-rounded fighter in terms of the striking in terms of the grappling in terms of the get-up game in terms of the activity off of their back in terms of threatening on the mat is mario bautista and i'm i'm gonna pick him here i'm gonna pick him here as the underdog it's a close fight i could see simone bullying bautista getting him up against the cage getting those takedowns controlling him up against the cage um, but Batista's never really been easy to take down, but this is going to be one of the highest level wrestlers that he's ever fought in Ricky Simone. But I also think the fight with Demon Blackshear, that was on short notice, so you have to give Mario Batista the benefit of the doubt there, which is the fact that he wasn't getting ready for a fighter in Demon Blackshear and he still found a way to win, outscramble, outpace, and, and win down the stretch. I think the pace of Simone might be a little bit too much for Bautista, but I think that the Damon Blackshear fight was a very good litmus test for getting ready for a fighter in Ricky Simone. I think Simone is a little bit is going to be a stronger version of Damon Blackshear, but I also think that Bautista is going to have the bigger moments. He's going to be more active. He's going to land more shots, and I think he kind of just outpoints and outworks Simone in terms of overall variety of strikes and submission attempts off of his back and wins this fight via a close decision. Um I'm going to go Mario Bautista 29-28 unanimous decision. I think it's going to be close. I don't see a finish in this fight from either guy. I think the fight does go all 3 rounds, but I like the plus 130 plus 140 underdog in Mario Bautista. He's just a little bit more technical, he's a little bit cleaner. And based on the fact that he has that submission threat off of his back, he's active in getting his way back up to his feet, and he's active with threatening off of his back if he gets taken down. I like that against a fighter who's going to look to employ that nose to the grindstone, forward pressure, takedowns, and, and just trying to hold position like a Ricky Simone. So, of course, he's going to threaten with submissions if he gets the opportunity. He's going to look to lay in ground and pound, but I think the more active fighter on the mat, whether it's on top or on the back, is going to be Mario Bautista hunting for those submissions. So I I could see Bautista locking up a sub, but I'm going to go 29-28 unanimous decision for the underdog in Mario Bautista here over Ricky Simone. Up next, a lightweight bout between Jim A10 Miller taking on Gabriel Benitez. Uh, I'm going to keep this short and sweet. I feel like Benitez should win this fight, but I think Jim Miller is going to find a way to get this done. 36 wins, 17 losses, one no contest for Jim Miller. 23 victories, 11 losses for Gabriel Benitez. In the UFC, Gabriel Benitez is getting finished. He's getting knocked out. He's getting put down. And I think Jim Miller's a fighter who didn't have a lot of knockout power early in his career. Most of his finishes came by submission. But the later into his career he's gotten, he kind of had like the reverse Cowboy Cerrone effect. Like Cowboy Cerrone declined rapidly with age. And I feel like Jim Miller kind of sucked up the success of what a Cowboy Cerrone was thought to be. And he's developing power. He's developing knockout power. He's developing big shots. He has submission threats. He has knockout power on the feet and he can push forward and crack fighters on the chin. But Neethas is going to have a big kicking advantage, but we've seen Jim Miller use very solid leg kicks in his MMA career. I mean, even using the calf kick. Back against Dustin Poirier and kind of destroying Poirier's leg in that fight. Where a lot of people just thought Poirier was going to run right through a fighter like Jim Miller. But he made it a very, very close and competitive fight. Jim Miller is going to be the more well-rounded fighter. He clearly has more experience uh, in terms of UFC level experience. They want him to be on UFC 300. I think that this is a a case where maybe the overactivity of Miller is going to bite him in the ass. And he gets finished by Benitez who has very solid powerful kicks, left body kicks, left head kicks, good straight punches down the middle, good boxing. And he's very, very powerful. He might be able to put Jim Miller out with a body kick, a head kick in the first round, 100%. But the longer the fight goes, the more well-rounded fighters, Jim Miller, the more the fighter with more ways to win, in my opinion, is going to be Jim Miller. And I think Miller's going to be able to kind of break Gabriel Benitez. I think he finds a big straight punch right down the middle, cuts that angle, Cuts him off and just bombs away on his chin. And I think he's going to submit Gabriel Benitez. I think he hurts him with a big shot on the feet. Rocks him, puts him down, jumps on him and puts him in that guillotine choke and gets a submission. I think it's another finish for Jim Miller who has the most finishes in the UFC. I believe he holds the record for the most finishes. Um, I think he hurts him with a big right hand, stuns him and then jumps on a guillotine and gets a sub. So I'm going to go with Jim Miller to get this win. Not take too much damage and get a fight at UFC 300. Um, I'm going to go with Jim Miller via a second round guillotine choke submission. Kind of a club and sub. He hurts him with a big shot on the feet. Rocks him and jumps on him for a sub. But Benitez is powerful. He has very solid kicks. And I wouldn't be surprised if Benitez kind of spoiled the UFC 300 party for Jim Miller. But I am going to go with Jim Miller here. I just think he has more weapons, more experience, better ways to win. And uh, I think he finds a finish here. So give me Jim Miller, second round guillotine choke submission over Gabriel Mowgli Benitez. All right, now we move to the co-main event of the evening in the flyweight division. A rematch between the number five ranked Mateus Nicolau taking on the number six ranked Manel Starboy Cape. Uh, Listen, I went back and watched the first fight. And I thought it was clearly round one Nicolau, clearly round two uh, Manel Kopp, and then clearly round three Mateus Nicolau. It was a split decision. The judges gave it to Nicolau. I think a lot of people complained about that. But if you go back and watch that fight, in the second round, Manel Kopp was piecing up Nicolau. He was landing bigger combinations. He was catching them at all angles with uppercuts, uh, with with left hooks, with right hooks, with, with little short shots. The best weapons from Manel Kopp... Were his little short shots, finding angles, little stutter step, bang, side movement, bang, lateral movement, bop, 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 bop. And it was just little short technical shots that caught Mateus Nicolau, and that's what hurt him. And then he got too wild, got too over aggressive, and would swing wild with his shots. And that's where Nicola was able to technically counter him with jabs, with right hands, with big left hooks, with switch stance left overhands. It was countering in between the wide shots of Manel Copp. I believe the more technical fighter is Mateus Nikolau. I believe the more well-rounded fighter overall is Mateus Nikolau. Nicolau got knocked out in his last fight by Brandon Royval with that knee right up the middle. Got hit with a knee. It was like a jab into a knee or a knee into an elbow, some type of thing, and it knocked Nikolau out cold. Um, I played the under two and a half in that fight along with playing Nicolau, so the under hit, but Nikolau did not. I've always been a big fan of Nicolau. I think that he is one of the most technically well-rounded fighters in the flyweight division. I think he picks his shots very well. He uses his jab. He uses his check hook. He uses his one-two. He has a beautiful left hook, whether he goes two-three, one-two-three, jab, hook, whether he check hooks and pivots. That lead hand is very, very solid. And the inside and outside calf kicks of Nicolau as well. The one thing he used in the first fight with Manel Cop was the takedowns off the forward pressure of Manel Cop. I believe if he goes back to the wrestling and mixes up those takedowns, it's going to make Manel Cop a little bit too gun-shy. But I also think this might be a case where Manel Cop is coming into this fight a little bit overconfident, which can bite him in the ass against a fighter as technically proficient as Mateus Nicolau. Manel Kopp is going to be coming in high off his last fight, he probably wants to set up a fight with Kai Carr of France. He's looking to get a title shot. He, he's talking a lot of trash. Uh, in his last fight against Felipe Dos Santos, who came off the Contender Series, um, he won the fight pretty clearly, but Dos Santos was landing big shots, big right hands, big left straights, big one-twos down the middle, and he wobbled. He stunned him in El Cop. He wobbled him his legs and stunned him. Mateus Nikolau gets hurt, gets wobbled all the time. I would say the more durable fighter at this point is Manel Kopp. Kopp hurt him multiple times in the first fight. And if he stays patient but still puts more pressure on than the last fight, if he puts more pressure on than the last time they fought but stays more patient when uh, Nikolau tries to counter and is able to intercept his counters with a recounter, then I think uh, Manel Kopp probably finishes Mateus Nikolau with his boxing combinations on the feet. But at the same time, I think this fight is still kind of a coin flip. I just feel like based off the knockout loss that Nikolau's coming off of, everybody's kind of doubting him and putting him, you know, in the grave, so to speak, and, and thinking Manel Kopp's just going to run through him. I don't think Manel Kopp's going to run through Nikolau. I think this fight is going to be just as competitive as the first time that they fought. Um, I think if anything, Manel Kopp's going to come into this fight a little bit overconfident, which is going to play into the counter-striking game of Mateus Nicolau, where he's going to be able to catch him with big counters and catch him with big shots. Now, I would say that if there's a finish in this fight with a knockout, uh, it would probably come from Starboy in Manel Kopp. I think that more than likely a-, a finish with boxing combinations with the striking comes from Manel because we've seen his ability to hurt Mateus Nicolau in the first fight, but he stepped off the gas and then, you know, let Nicolau come back in with, with big counters, catching him in between the looping wide aggressive shots of Cape. Um, I don't know. This is a very tricky fight. Uh, in my opinion, it's a coin flip. I, I don't think that, I think the odds are actually way off because Manel Kopp lost the first fight. And I thought he lost it clearly. Like I thought it was 2-1 Nikolau pretty clearly in the first fight. But, you know, Cop just had the bigger shots and and hurt Nicolau more than Cape did. Or, I'm sorry, hurt Nicolau more than Nicolau hurt Cape. So, I don't know. Like, this is a tough fight for me to call. I feel like the the logical pick would probably go to the side of Manel Cop because he probably has higher finishing upside and he's coming in with more confidence than Nicolau coming off a loss. But I feel like Cape's going to come in overconfident and overaggressive And the counter left hook, the counter right hand, the the counter calf kicks, the counter wrestling. I think the counter game of Nicolau is going to be on point in this fight. And I'm going to side with the over plus 200 underdog in Mateus Nicolau again. I'm going to go with Nicolau to get the job done again. Plus 200, plus 220, somewhere around there. It says plus 195, but I think he's around plus 200 on DraftKings. I'll pull it up real quick he is currently at yeah, plus 200 so 2 to 1 i'm going to go with the 2 to 1 underdog the number 5 ranked mateus nicolau to get the job done again over manel cop i think cape's going to come in i know i'm saying cop and cape i think it's manel cape i've heard people say manel cop i think it's manel cape but i think manel cape's going to come in too over aggressive too overconfident i think the overconfidence of cape and the technical proficiency of nicolau where he might be a little gun shy, but he'll be able to find his counters. I think he's going to get the job done here. I'm going to go with Mateus Nicolau to get it done. I'm going to go by TKO this time. I think the over-aggressiveness of Cape is going to have big success for him at certain points, but leave him open for big counters because he does leave his chin in the air when he throws his combinations because he throws multiple shots and doesn't move his head too well. So I'm going to go with Mateus Nikolau for a second round TKO. I think the smarter pick might be decision, but just based off the overconfidence, I think we're going to see Cape come into this fight with. I, I think he's going to get clipped and get hurt. I mean, he got hurt a few times in that Felipe Dos Santos fight, and he has a chin, but I think Nicolau can, can capitalize on it, even though Cape is probably the more durable fighter. But give me Mateus Nicolau, uh, second round TKO, probably better to pick decision, but I'm going to go with Nicolau to go 2-0 and against Manel Cape. All right, up next in the main event of the evening, another rematch in the light heavyweight division between Johnny Walker, who's ranked number seven in the light heavyweight division, taking on the number three ranked Magomed Ankulaev. Um, We know what happened in the first fight. You know, Walker was almost landed a flying knee as Ankolaev tried to close the distance. He he drew him in, faking that he was hurt to the body and, and almost landed that flying knee counter. Um, and that's what I think. I think that the odds are way off here. Ankalaev is the better fighter. He's the better technical fighter, uses better footwork, check right hook, straight left hand, left head kicks, left body kicks, inside kicks. He moves very well. He's better defensively. I mean, he is technically the better fighter everywhere. He's going to have the better wrestling, the better takedowns. And if he wants to win this fight easily, I would say it's probably going to be done with the wrestling, grappling, takedown, like we saw him try to implement in the first fight before the illegal strike landed. But honestly, I think Johnny Walker's live here. I picked him in the last fight to, to knock out Ankolaev. I even put some money on his money line bet, um, which got voided due to the no contest, which probably saved me, to be honest, with how the fight was playing out. Um, if you look at Ankolaev's career, I think it's funny that we've had a similar situation to this with Magomed Ankolaev and Iwan Kutelaba, where in their first fight, Ankolaev got hit, or uh, Kutelaba got hit with a head kick, and then he kind of rope-a-doped, and the ref jumped in and stopped it, thinking he was out on his feet. And then Kutilava was like, no, 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 no. But he got the TKO win anyway, did Ankalaev. They rematched, and then Ankalayev brutally knocked him out in the first round. So I think looking at this fight, based off the past, you would probably want to favor Ankalaev to knock out Johnny Walker. You know, but the MMA math doesn't make sense. But I think Ankalaev is cleaner. He is more technical. He is better defensively. He does have the better wrestling, the better takedowns, the better submissions. But Walker's just very awkward. He moves in and out very well. He throws flying knees. He can land power in very awkward positions, like when uh, Paul Craig grabbed his sing- the single leg on Walker, and then he got hit with a back fist and dropped, and then he went for an ankle pick, and he just got kept blasting him and knocked him out. Um, he can land elbows to the side of the head off takedown attempts, like we've seen him knock people out with before as well. I believe that was against Ryan Spann with elbows and then hammer fists as uh, Spann tried to get the takedown. And then Coach Safe Sayud said that it was to the back of the head. Uh, I, Johnny Walker is just a case of you don't know what you're going to get. And I mean, he's been knocked out before. He can be knocked out. He can be finished. ankalaev has been finished one time. It was at the last second in a Hail Mary submission from the king of the Hail Mary submissions in Paul Craig. Ankalayev though, you know, gets submitted by Paul Craig, Johnny Walker knocks out Paul Craig, you know, MMA math doesn't work. And I think that I have to go. Oh, I don't, uh, I don't know. It's tough. Cause I think Ankalaev should win it. He should win it. He's the better fighter. He can use his wrestling. He can use the top control. He can use the ground and pound. He can hunt for submissions, but at the same time, I feel like Ankalaev's kind of overlooking Johnny Walker. And I know he's going to want to come in and make a statement. I feel like, I think Ankalaev's going to want to come into this fight and make a statement. And in that regard, I think he's going to leave himself open for a big shot, a big counter, a flying knee, a head kick, a spinning back fist, a big right hand. He's going to leave himself open for something. And I think Ankalaev's just patient approach and point-fighting style is going to bite him in the ass in this fight against Johnny Walker. I'm going to go with the plus 350 underdog. In Johnny Walker, do I think it's the best bet? Do I think you should run to the window and bet it? No. Do I think Ankalaev probably wins it more times than he doesn't? Yeah. I mean, on paper, he probably does. But I think Johnny Walker just has that awkward style and awkward ability to just catch Ankelaev with something that he doesn't see coming. I mean, you saw it in the last fight with the body shot. He faked and then almost landed that flying knee. It's tough it's really tough but I'm gonna go with Johnny Walker to get a knockout here I'm gonna go with the plus 350 dog and Johnny Walker to get the knockout against ankolaev I mean like I said it's probably not the smartest pick but I picked him in the last fight and although it wasn't going our direction technically we didn't see enough of the fight to to do anything about it or make any concrete uh judgments and nobody got hurt on the feet or wobbled or rocked so I'm gonna stick with my original pick from their first fight and go with Johnny Walker by a second round knockout I don't know if I picked second round in the last fight I think I probably did I might have picked first but I'm gonna go with Johnny Walker second round knockout I think he lands like an awkward elbow as unclekaliev shoots a takedown or goes for a single leg like a back fist or an elbow or a knee uh something on the inside as as uncle I was trying to get a takedown and hurts unclekola and puts him out so I'm going to go with the big upset, Johnny Walker, second round knockout, not my most confident play, but I'm just going to go with my original pick from the first fight because we didn't see enough the first time around to make any, you know, differences in judgment, to be honest. So give me Johnny Walker, second round knockout as the plus 350 underdog against Magomed Ankalaev and have him knocking on the door to a title shot. I think Johnny Walker and Alex Pereira would be a crazy ass fight. And I feel like we're going to get that at some point. So Johnny Walker, second round knockout. All right, that's going to be it for my predictions for UFC Vegas 84, UFC Fight Night, Ankalaya versus Walker 2. Fights, again, are going to take place this Saturday, January 13th from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada with a start time of 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. This podcast will be uploaded to my YouTube channel, which is the same name as the podcast at the Touch'em Up podcast. You can find it on anywhere you get your audio podcasts as well. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many, many more. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Enjoy the fights this weekend, and let's make some money, baby.